Welcome back to another episode of the Voices of Value podcast with your host, Kala Stutzer. As you already know, we are live action from Overland Park, Kansas at the Leo Moreno Jr. Boxing Club, Boxing Gym. So make sure you guys check that out. Google it. Leave a five-star review. Send your kids here. Get their hands right. You know, get the vibes right. Big things, you know. Um, But before we continue, as you always know, we got a little agreement. A little call to action. A little something, something I need y'all to do for me so I can do more for you. Go ahead and click the notifications button. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe on all social media platforms at Voices of Value Podcast. And with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, let's go ahead and roll on into our wins in business. Starting locally, ladies and gentlemen, the United Auto Workers Strike is happening nationwide. It's a big thing. It's interrupting all types of industries. So many people are talking about it. It's all over every business news website. Now, you might be wondering, how does that affect Kansas City? Why is this a uh, local thing in business? And, And to be honest, it's not a local win, but I will say it's something to be paying attention to. So the GM, um... The General Manor, what is that company called? GM, yeah, just General Motors, there we go. General Motors said that they are warning that they might lay off up to 2,000 non-striking workers at one of their Kansas City plants. And I felt like that might be one thing I should mention today. If any of you guys are working at General Motors, you're in the Kansas City area, but you don't pay too much attention to the news, it might be the right time to start paying attention to the news, because if this impacts your family, you might want to start getting prepared and God willing, everything goes well, everything goes fly. Um, you know, the, the union and the uh, motor companies come to an agreement that, you know, goes well for the companies and goes well for the workers. But if all things go south, it's better to be prepared than not prepared. So wanted to make sure we do our due diligence on our business podcast to make sure you're updated on that. Um, Moving on to the rest of the world, Instacart. Um, I think I talked about it last week, but if I didn't, I know I definitely talked about it on TikTok. So Instacart IPO'd last week. Um, But one thing you should know is their co-founder. Now, I'm not going to lie. I don't know how to say his name. Um, Aporva Meta is exiting with more than $1 billion in a fortune. So he's one of the co-founders of Instacart. He decided to step down and relinquish his board position as executive chairman upon their IPO. So they IPO, they went live, stock went out there, people could start buying stocks. Um, a lot of people won, a lot of people lost, a lot of people, you know, their evaluation a few years ago was supposed to be like above $9 billion, like like 10, 5x, $9 billion, and now their valuation is around $9 billion. So people were a little worried about what's going to happen, what's the uh, are people going to lose money? Well, let me tell you what, the co-founder is walking away with a billion, so... I think we're good there. That is our belly of the week. So go make sure you check out Aporva Meta. Go read up a little bit on his um, part in Instacart. And if you didn't know that they IPO'd and that you can now buy a share, now you know. With that being said, ladies and gentlemen, our wins and losses in business in the nation and locally are covered. Let's move on to our episode interview with Nasir Chris. Thank you for having me. I always got to give your flowers first because like. Just even hearing you talk and like break down the pod and like knowing you for now a year, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit more than yeah, that. A bit. It's great to see like your knowledge and just like your growth, bro. So thank you for having me. And um, I'm excited to learn from you in this conversation just as much as me. But um, 
where do I start? Uh, I always tell people, I give them like the spark notes version of my background. And we've done this before. We had like a part one of this, so I won't go too deep into it, but um, I'm a kid from New Jersey. I grew up in Virginia, um, moved to New York city, spent some time in the DMV and then moved to the Midwest. Um, I've always just kind of had one goal in mind, which is create equitable opportunities for people that have never had them. Um, so I've kind of let that be my driving force throughout life. And I started off as like a technology entrepreneur. And then from there went into capital, venture capital, private equity. Um, and now I'm kind of using all of those skill sets together to both create my own companies and businesses, but also uh, help the people that I get an opportunity to sit down with and build bridges with do the same for themselves. So that's, it, that's the quick and dirty, man. That's the quick and dirty. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, man, let me tell you guys something about Nasir. You meet certain people in your life where their energy just draws you to them on a daily basis. And obviously I can't just pull up on Nasir at his apartment every morning <laughs> at 6 a.m. So like one thing I realized is when you feel that type of energy from somebody in your life, whether you know them well or not, you need to make a consistent effort to communicate and let them know that you got love for them. And people be like, how oh, you got love for somebody you only known for a year? That's exactly what I'm saying. Certain people just present a certain energy off the rip where you're like, wow, this individual has something special about them. And it's not even like, I don't even mean that from a skill set perspective, but just like, hey, there's some special energy coming from this individual and I want to make sure I put myself around them as much as possible because they make me feel good. You know what I'm saying? Um, and then, you know, sure, it's a double whammy if they're smart and have skill sets like Nasir, which we'll jump into. But like, you're just a good person, bro. And I think... uh and, you know, we all like to be humble and be like, nah, nah, if only you knew what I did. Like, I don't give a fuck what you did in your life. <laughs> Listen, like everyone has their ups and downs, sure. But ever since I met you, just a very um, genuine, uh, authentic, n and, and no confusion about that either. I never had to explore and like study you. I was just like, nah, I feel it already. So that's me giving my flowers to you. Appreciate it, bro. And... With that being said, like you said, we did a part one of this, so we are going to skip the whole, you know, from childhood up, because I think we covered that before, <laughs> yeah. and I'm thinking about maybe, you know, putting in a little intro at the beginning of myself, breaking down a little intro for you for for the guests, so they don't need that right now, but what we're where we will start is, you started off technology entrepreneurship, Yeah, that was in college, um, was that your sophomore or junior year? It's my sophomore year, um, <clears throat> Yeah, I just crossed Alpha, so I pledged Alpha Phi Alpha Fraternity Incorporated, and I met through the fraternity, one of my best friends to this day, Mutaba Oguda. Um, you know, business partners and people come and go out of your life, but he's been one person that for more than a decade now has been consistent. You talk about that consistency of keeping good people around, and we've gone on to do many things, but we, we started a company together, and the idea was, like, we had so many friends that were so talented, like videography, web design, software engineering, you name it. Um, but one thing they struggled with was actually matching their skill sets to paying customers. And they didn't even define it as that before. They were like, I just want to get my work out there. And so um, we decided to kind of do a matchmaking of sorts. It was started off as a consultancy where we would take them and build out business development strategies for them. Um, and then it actually turned into a platform where we ended up having a ton of local businesses. I think by the time... I graduated, he's a year or two older than me, but by the time I graduated in 2018, we had about 50 businesses on the platform that would contract our classmates for small That's jobs, it. right? That's so it, yeah. ad campaign or commercial, or maybe it's a restaurant that has like a new product, right? And they want to put that on their website. And so um, we helped 
so many students, so many of our classmates um, be able to kind of find work, but also explore their skill sets. To this day, you know, I think of, you know, a few of them off the top of my head that are doing that thing that they started with kind of full time as like their passion project, but also their, their money maker. So that was the beginning, man. And then fell in love with entrepreneurship from there. Did the businesses know that everyone they were working with were students? Was that kind of like how you pitched it to them? Like, hey, local businesses, you're going to be working with your local college. So talk a little bit about that. Was that like the narrative that you were trying to put out there? Or did that just kind of end up happening like that? You're like, well, we're just going to help our friends. We don't really care about anybody outside of Christopher Newport. Right? Christopher yeah, Newport. yeah, you got it. You got <laughs> it. It's such, a, such a school I ain't never heard of. I didn't know <laughs> if I said it right. But, it's a small um, school. But yeah, was that like the narrative you guys were trying to push when you were selling or I guess putting, you know, whatever information you put out there to get clients to come in? Yeah, I think it it wasn't what we originally wanted to do. We didn't want to discount ourselves by being like, oh, we're college students or we're younger. Or I think what business owners hear is inexperience when you say those things. But I think that we actually found that it was an advantage when talking to the businesses because we could say, hey, you're going to get discounted work, but you're not going to get discounted talent. Because we were choosing people that were very, very skilled that had been doing these things as hobbies for a very long time, but needed a way to be able to kind of showcase that skill set and then get paid for it. And so the pitch was just, hey, we can come in, do a better job than somebody you might hire from Upwork or Fiverr or whatever it may be. You're helping us allow these people to get some hours outside of the classroom, practicing whatever their hobby may be, whatever their passion may be, um, and you're getting it at a discounted rate. And then from there, it was about delivery and execution, man. Like everything is about execution. That's the difference between good and great. And so we would make sure that the people that we worked with, we vetted them so that when they would go do a job for a client or a customer, they would deliver. And so what did that vetting process look like? Yeah. So I think it was a little bit of sitting with the people for a while, building those relationships and actually understanding what their skill sets were, but really stress testing their ability to survive kind of in I guess, hard situations or difficult situations. There'd be some times where we were up against a tight deadline. There'd be some times where the budget was a little bit smaller. And so we had to put our money in, but the people that threw their hats in first and said, yo, I'm willing to work on the weekends. I'm willing to not go to a party on a Friday so we can get this website done. I'm willing to actually make sure that we can kind of set up a good working communication system and reaching out to the clients where Mutaba and I didn't have to. I mean, that was what we looked for. And it's hard to kind of spot those things in people initially Um, But I think like we were choosing people that had that type of character, right? Like you talk about building trust very early on with people. There's some people that exemplify those types of things and make you know that they're trustworthy. And I won't say we got it right all the time. You know, we had some people that we did jobs with that did one job and then never came back or signed on to do a job and then never showed up. Um, But I think for the most part, we got pretty good at being able to see um, people's skill set, but then also their level of accountability. So when we think about businesses Nasir has thought about uh, put put work in started launched and like built was that is that the number one and only one since and then now you've been transitioned like full into working on the other side of entrepreneurship from a venture capital private equity perspective or have there been other businesses that maybe and the reason I have to ask this question is just yeah. from the perspective of yeah I know you for a year I know about that story from a from you know doing my little research but Ever since then, I know you for being 68 Capital and then a little bit prior to 68 Capital when you were working with uh, one of the local uh, one of the lo- local firms yeah. with the, through Venture for America. Um, so talk a little bit about that. Like you, you, you do that business. I assume you run that all the way through your senior year. Yeah. And then when you graduate and you're like, all right, what's next? Was it I'm going to start a business or were you like, okay, Venture for America, Venture for America, then this, then this. Did you already have it all planned out? Yeah. Yeah. Um- So that was the first ever business that I started. 
Um, and I would say once I did that, I got bit by the entrepreneurial bug, you know, like it was like, I want to do this thing. I want to be a founder. I want to build companies. I want to help other people build companies. So, um, I don't want to tell this story to be like, man, that business was a massive success. Cause it wasn't, right. I think we learned more from the failures of that company than we did from the success that it did have. Um, but I think what it did was open up doors for us to be able to learn and then start to build a network. So by the time I was a senior in college, I'd actually had a hand in probably building like 10 plus businesses. Sick. They weren't the ones, or I didn't solely own those companies. Right. I wasn't like CEO or founder, yeah. but I would come in and do operations or product development. Mm-hmm. And so I got these skill sets. Um, you know, I'm thinking about a ton of different things. Uh, shout out my boy, John Eccles with the 10th music, which is now a full fledged company. Um, Jay Roach was just beginning his modeling career and music career, and we were starting to work with him. Shout out Jay Roach! You killing right the now. Goat. I'm seeing you everywhere. I've had <laughs> I've had to send him random Instagram DMs like three times now. Like, hey, bro, was this you? Yeah, bro. So, he be he be Jay going Roach. crazy with the with the placements, ad placements. Um, my boy Sway Danoa, who's at Alarm.com right now, essentially their CTO. Um, he built a really cool parking app in college, and so I mean, going through that experience of seeing those things, I was like, this is pretty awesome. And also keeping in mind that. Some of the most successful people I knew from, um, let's just call it personal revenue standpoint, had built things, had sold things. And so that was some of the goal, too, is like, I want to build something that will create change in the world. But I also know that ownership and then kind of exiting from that ownership is how you actually create generational wealth. And so I was a senior man and I was like, I really want to work at a startup. Um, I had kind of had some of those experiences, but I knew I wasn't ready to build what I wanted to build yet. Um, and that's like some crazy self-awareness for me being kind of like 22 years old, right? Like thinking that like I ran the world. I was mm-hmm. like, I started a business while also going to college. Like had a great GPA, joined a fraternity, was president. But I had to say like, I actually don't know how to run a multi-million dollar company. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I did, man, was I sat down and I researched what are the traits and characteristics of very successful CEOs of startups or tech companies. So I'd like look at those things and I was like, all right, I can do that. I can do that. I don't know about that. Like, I don't know about that. And some of it is like, once you start a company, you can kind of offload some of that by who you bring on around you to help you. But I was like, I want to know how to do all the things. Um, And so my next immediate goal after college was where can I go to learn the skills that I have not yet picked up? Um, And so I had a mentor of mine. His name is Rob Douglas. Um, Great dude. This guy, you know, he was going to Vanderbilt College and uh, built an app with Arian Foster that overnight made like $300,000. Oh, wow. Um, I don't remember the name of the app and what it was. I think it was like a news aggregator. Like they found a way to like pull in media from a bunch of different places, but like funnel it into one kind of UX. Yeah. Um, and he's just like a, like a wizard of a guy. I studied like engineering and everything, but he gave me a shot. So he was like, yo, can't pay you that much, but like come to New York City, I'm going to build this startup and you can be literally my right-hand man and kind of see that. And so we went from you know, essentially nothing, very small startup company to multi-million dollar business in the course of less than two years. So I got to see that, man. Like I got to see that firsthand. And that was my first real experience with like, oh, this is what like a high growth company looks like, Hmm. right? Like I could go into like the nuances of how we thought about product and customers and the grind. But um, that was really special to me, man. And that was like one of those experiences I'll cherish forever because I got to be in the driver's seat essentially of a company that you know, is a rocket ship to this day. Yeah. And you said, you know, not to go into the nuances of how you guys built this or what worked, what didn't work, but what did happen is you got a lot of practice in in those two years. And then also in the years leading up to your senior year, being, having a hand in, you know, 10 different businesses, you know, 
everyone has different opinions on how to build and grow a startup, right? What are some, I don't know if the correct vocabulary is nonconformist thoughts or ideas or opinions you have about the startup space that maybe you'd be a little scared to say around your peers. <laughs> like, is there anything that pops in your head where you're like, this is not something most people in the space agree with, but I do. And I'm all in on this thought for now. Obviously we can always change our thoughts, but. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a challenging question for sure. I'm not going to act like I know right off the top of my head an answer to it, but um, I think that there is this like painful optimism almost that people have where it's like, I have this great idea. It's going to work. I think every startup founder that builds anything is like, I have this great idea. It's going to work without ever actually internalizing the process that it may not actually work. It may blow up in your face. It may not ever go anywhere. And so I think that like painful optimism can sometimes turn into delusion for people um, because they stick with a business for too long or they stay in something for too long rather than kind of seeing the signs of what it is. And I get it. Like I've built things. I've had many things fail, right? Like you believe when you start this thing or you see an opportunity or you get that first check or you get that first customer or whatever that's going to work. And then there's this balance too of like, when do I give up? Right? Like, is it, is it right on the other side uh, 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 of giving up that like, it might be a massive success. That idea of digging gold in your five feet away and then you stop. But sometimes you're literally digging in mud and there ain't no gold. Mm. Um, and so I think that's where it's important to really realize anytime I think about starting something new, I also try to think about the opposite end, right? Like I try to think about, okay, these are all the ways it can go right. How can I challenge myself to actually think about the ways that it could go wrong and either try to prevent or try to set up systems so that when something goes wrong, I'm increasing my ability to to get to the right. Um, I was having this conversation actually with one of my boys earlier today. Um, His name's Tanner Smith. He works at Rolls Royce. So we were chatting today and and I was telling him, like, is he the reason I've seen Rolls Royce in your stories a yeah, few weeks man. ago? Yeah, I had to visit Some my nice boys, see what they're working on. <laughs> yeah, see what they're working good. on. I didn't know that Rolls Royce actually makes all their money from airplane engines. I had no idea. Yeah. Wow. So, the <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> you have just been notified. <laughs> the freaking, uh, they lease the rights to an automaker that's in Europe. So, the person that makes the Rolls Royce cars is not, or the company, is not actually affiliated with Rolls Royce, the main flagship. Rolls-Royce, the main flagship, builds airplane engines, and that's how they get all their money. But it is the same branding. They lease that 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 branding rights to an automaker, and then they're the ones that make the cars. That's sick. It's pretty that's wild. Um, there's a story about the founders of that. But anyways, I was chatting with this guy, man, and I was like, yo, if you're a self-aware person and you're pretty like intelligent, like you can formulate in your mind when you think you're doing something right, and then when you're you know you're doing something wrong. But like, how do you put yourself in a place where there's like real accountability to like push to do different things or to challenge your own thoughts, right? Like inherently we absorb content or attract people that are similar to us. So really like within all of our little bubbles, we're just living with kind of similar people. Um, and he was saying, you know, it's so important to build like a personal advisory board around you of people mm-hmm. that have conflicting thoughts. Mm-hmm. So then they can actually like challenge you. Um, and I think that as founders, whenever we're starting stuff to go back and then it kind of close the loop on this point, we want as many people around us to be like pushing towards this momentum of this thing or to be agreeing with this thing or to make us feel really good about this thing so we can keep going. But it's also important to have like one to three people that like can actually be like, well, did you think about this? 
or like, actually, I don't think that's the best thing to do. Have you thought about doing it in a different way? Because, you know, not to say that you're going to take their advice all the time, but it's good to have that system of accountability from other people that are intelligent that think differently. So that's what I would say. I think like there's this whole kind of movement in startups and founders are like, we're starting something new. Like, it's so exciting. Yeah. Like everyone cares about it. Not really. <laughs> right. Like it's like you, you have to build something that has substantial value to do that. You have to study the people that you're trying to provide the value to. And to do that, you have to go and meet those people. You have to challenge your ideas of why you think something's great and why it might not be, but why it could be. And then you have to be able to build that value on top of that for that community. So yeah, I think it was a long way to answer. No, but. No, that was amazing. I think, I think my follow-up question to that is, well, let me, let me share my thoughts on what you just said. So what I was thinking in my head is like, okay, so that makes sense. You have an idea, right? You're so confident about this idea because you kind of are required to be pretty damn confident about it in order to chase that and put all the work in that is required for starting a bit, really starting anything, but we'll stick on the topic of business. Um, and then you're going, you're going, you're not really getting traction. But if you do have that personal advisory board and you're like, yo, what do you think about this? And then they start keeping it a buck with you. Hey, I think this part of your idea is trash. This is what you should do instead. So if you do decide to take those opinions and those thoughts and like implement them into your plan and process, you don't have to give up on your idea. You just have to pivot a little bit. Mm -hmm. And it's often those 30,000 pivots that finally lead to that success, right? Um, You know, there's, I don't have any off the top of my head, but I do know that there's plenty of stories of these big, you know, billion dollar businesses now that pivoted like completely like they were like yeah well we were thinking about starting um you know a a roping company for boxing rings but then we were like why not just turn it into sour candy (laughs) you know whatever whatever the stupid story is right but it's always there's definitely some random pivot so i understand it from that perspective i guess the question is is it the individual's responsibility to like decide that they're gonna like you know try this idea that somebody from their personal advisory board you know gave them or like should they just give up because their original idea is not is not going? I guess it's it goes back to the same thing you were saying about you're just hitting on something, you're hitting on something, you're not seeing any success, and now you're just like, all right, enough people are telling me this isn't a good idea, let me just stop. And then yeah. they're like, stop and shut it all the way down. So do you think anybody should ever shut down their com- company in totality? Um, and if so, how do, how, how do they like, what questions should they ask themselves or how should they reverse engineer that? Or... What I'm thinking is you should never shut down your company. You should just pivot based off of the, you know, what you're hearing and the research you're doing. That was a long-winded way of trying yeah. to ask a question, but I think you got what I'm asking. I think all of the scenarios that you presented are technically right, mm-hmm. right? Like there's no specific right answer. Mm-hmm. I think that I can think about several scenarios where like a person should definitely shut down the company. <laughs> like it is like, you know, they've not made revenue they haven't secured any customers. Maybe they're building a following, but like, does that convert to the business moving forward and growing? Um, you know, and then I think there's situations where it's like there are businesses that get to a certain amount of revenue, but then they just stagnate, they plateau. And that would be a perfect time to be like pivot, pivot, pivot. There's also some businesses where it's like, maybe they don't want to take on anyone else's ideas. Maybe they want to just build whatever they want. And so I think the thing that founders have to do and ask themselves, and I say this having been a founder, having still being an entrepreneur, owning my businesses is like, what is my goal with whatever it is I'm creating, right? Like, where do I foresee this thing going? 
And then the portion of having the personal advisory board is not so that they tell you where to step next. You're the visionary. You're the founder. Mm. It's so that they can tell you if what you're doing is aligning with where you're trying to go. Cause yeah. it's hard for us to see outside of that lane yeah. when we're in it. You know what I'm saying? And so I think when you have those people around you that can be like, well, you said you wanted to be a million dollar company in the next 12 months or 14 months in and you don't have $5. Like <laughs> maybe the confidence you had 14 months ago is not what you should have now, but that doesn't mean shut down. Let's figure out maybe if there's something to do or a pivot to take or a new direction to go in different way to think about things to get you past, you know, like writers have like writer's block. Like I'm going to say like founder's block, founder's mm -hmm. block. Like how do we get you past that founder's block to that next level? Or is it that, you know, you need to consider, is this the right thing? There's this concept that I've heard a few investors say where they're like, um, jockey and horse. So the horse is the company and the jockey is the CEO and they work in tandem obviously to produce a successful result. Sometimes you have the right jockey, but the wrong horse. Mm. right? Like that person might be really well suited to take a company to the next level, but maybe not this company in this industry or with this thing. Or sometimes the company itself is a great idea, but you have a jockey that's just, they don't, they don't know how to ride it to that successful outcome. They don't know how to get to that place. Um, so maybe you keep the company, you keep the product, but you switch out the, the, the founder, the CEO. So, I mean, there's, there's so many different ways, like I said, to think about it, but I think the questions that I would ask myself if I was in a place where I felt like my business was stagnating or other people were kind of giving me that level of accountability is what was my goal? How close am I to that? Am I still adding value to the people that are around me? How much more value can I add to more people that don't know the business or don't interact with it? You know, and then also like the, one of the questions too is where's kind of my personal mind frame and my mind state, right? Like, Am I burnt out from doing this thing? Do I feel like I'm like churning the wheels and it's not necessarily going anywhere? Have I spent every last dollar and maxed out all my credit cards? Like, I mean, very practical things of at a certain point, it doesn't mean you give up on yourself as a founder. It just can mean that that business is not where it needs to go. So you've extracted all the learnings mm, yeah, and it's, it's time, time to, to roll them into the next thing. I love that. I love that. So I have one final question on the debate and going back to the jockey and the I'm horse concept. I'm enjoying this, bro. This is dope. <laughs> I want to go back to the jockey and the horse concept to ask you a specific question there, and then I want to transition into Nasir's day-to-day. -day. Okay. You know, 2023, September, what's life looking like? So um, jockey and the horse, what do you think is the difference between, like, I don't know any other way to say this besides, like, a CEO CEO and a founder's founder? Like, I think – Sometimes, or if we just pay attention to the ecosystem, to the business ecosystem, we see a founder grow a company to a certain point, then he steps down and they hire a CEO. Why does that happen? And what makes a CEO, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah. When should a founder know, hey, I'm not a CEO, I'm a founder. And what's yeah. the difference between those two? Yeah. Um, again, there's no right answer. I can tell you kind of like from my personal experience, yeah. what I've seen and then my observation of what that is. But a lot of the times, the founder is the idea person. So they're the person that has a vision of this great thing to do. They're the ones that have been observing the problem for 20 years or even just a year or whatever it may be. And they feel so passionate and inspired that they want to create. But when the business gets to a certain level of execution, it needs a chief execution officer to be able to run it through and to make it seamless and to make it run as a well-oiled machine. And so I think a lot of the times founders are usually wearing 50 hats. I mean, they're doing finance, business development, customer success, product development, engineering, 
legal. Like they're doing all the things, talent. Um, and it gets to a place where like bandwidth wise, they cannot like literally mentally, they start to be kind of clouded because they're doing so many things and they're so in the weeds of everything that they're not still getting an opportunity to have that like vision or that creativity to be able to pull the company in the direction of where it should go. And so a lot of the times when you see those transitions where they're still a founder, maybe they step into like a chairman or chairwoman role or something like that. And they hire a CEO. It's because they realize there's someone better positioned to run the day-to-day operations of that business to manage all of those processes so that they can continue to think about grander scale and the bigger picture of how to actually take the company as a whole to this next level. Um, and so that's what I would say happens. There's also times where founders are like, all right, we're kind of successful. They raise some capital. They take some secondary off the table, which means they just put some in their pocket. And then they're like, I'm going to take a step back. Like I've done enough at this point. I want to be able to enjoy life. I mean, there's also times where the founders kind of scrappily put something together, but they don't know now the direction of how to keep it growing. And so the board might come in and say, we need to put a CEO in place. That's an industry veteran and can push this thing forward. So there's a variety of different things, but I think most commonly it's a founder recognizing that they need to spend their time doing less things because if they can spend their time doing less things, they can be more effective at those things. And so what better way to do that than staffing a CEO, COO, a CTO, people that can come around you and help you do some of that work. I love that. Thank you for sharing. So Nasir, Chris, it is 2023. It is September 20 something. (laughs) 22nd. Yeah. 22nd, somewhere over there. Um, what, give me an update just on career. Like, what are your what are what are some projects you're working on? Maybe what's something you're excited about right now? Um, just give us a start us off at where Nasir's at mentally, um, but around career and industry. Yeah. Obviously, mental health matters. We'll dive into that a little bit. For too. Sure, got to shout out the game. But, uh, but yeah, just like mentally and, and projects and and life encompassing things that you're doing to to progress forward in your career. What's life looking like? Yeah, man. Um, I'll tell you something really cool that like we haven't said publicly and I'm hoping that <laughs> by the time this airs, it'll be, it'll be there. But, um, Mutaba and I just led an ownership group to buy a sports team. So, um, we just, <laughs> I had to find the camera. I had to find the camera. You see the eyes zoom yeah. in. Congratulations. Thanks, keep, man. keep pushing. Go ahead. Um, so we, you know, I won't kind of disclose the name and everything yet, but we were able to bring in professional athletes from a few different leagues. Um, some of our friends, some of the people that we've kind of done stuff with over the years, you know, Mutaba is really great at finding like just create incredible opportunities all over the place. So um, we bought a, an ownership stake in this team um, and I'm excited for that journey. Cause that's like always been a, a dream of a mine dream, is to like sure. own a sports team, man. Hell and so yeah. uh, we put that together and that'll be finalized here in the next couple of days. So, God Fun bless. kind of side project, but also um, one again. Side project. Ladies and gentlemen, do you hear this? That's how you know Nasir's a hustler. My man just said, behind an ownership stake in a sports team, side project. <laughs> yeah, bro. Um, it, it was it was just a blessing, honestly. Um, so, so doing that, um, but just like constantly staying hungry, man. Um, shout out Jordan Roach. He's about to build a startup right now that's going to help creators get paid faster. So. I love it. Um, you know, we noticed that a lot of the times models, artists, uh, graphic designers, et cetera, that are signed to agencies or not will do jobs and not get paid. So we were like, you know, for months, I mean, so we were like, yeah, there's gotta be a platform that could essentially be a creator lender where Mm -hmm. we can advance you the money. Mm -hmm. You can be able to take care of your bills, take care of whatever you need to do. 
And then when you get your paycheck, you know, you throw us a little bit of extra on the top, but right. like it comes to you. So you're never behind. So yeah, I love that working through that right now, man. Um, and then obviously like always thinking about the venture stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing that's been top of mind for me recently is the fact that not all businesses are venture backable. What I mean by that is like not all businesses can get venture capital dollars. And so we see these like massive news headlines of these companies that go public or get acquired or get these, you know, massive checks. Um, but those companies are built a certain type of way and mm-hmm. not all businesses are built like that. And then like kind of zoom in the microscope a little bit more, a lot of black and brown businesses are not built that way. And so instead of us being like, yo, you got to figure out how to take the boxing gym and figure out how to scale into all 50 States, like in the next year for you to get venture capital dollars, you know, one of the things I'm trying to think about right now is, is there a funding mechanism where you can say, no, like, there's a different process that you can take and here's what you can qualify for. And we're still going to take equity, mm-hmm. but we're also going to maybe do a revenue payback or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, and so I've been actually trying to think about something that exists outside the lines of venture capital, but isn't necessarily private equity and isn't debt. Like it's something that I don't think is being done right now or it's not being done well, at least um, to do some sort of revenue based financing mixed in with equity. Um, so those are like, top of mind right now. And again, bro, the goal is just like creation to be able to give equitable opportunities to people that have been marginalized. That is with everything that I'm doing. It's like, those are the things I'm trying to create. And then I appreciate you asking mentally, bro. Um, I think I go through cycles as we all do. Um, so I just came out of what I would say was a low cycle where I just was super overwhelmed. I got surgery a couple of weeks ago. So recovering from that. Um, but that time, you know, off gave me a second to rest. And to really like think about what are my moves going to be for the next five to 10 years? And how do I move differently than how I moved the last five to 10 years? Have you always thought in that five to 10 year horizon? Have you, like, and if so, have you found that to be valuable versus like uh 2024 goals? Yeah. I think for me, this is me personally, I have to see the bigger picture and then I work backwards from that. Mm-hmm. Right. So 10 year goal would be, hundred million dollar net worth, uh, probably living next to a beach somewhere, wife and kids, businesses doing well, um, having employed hundreds, if not a thousand people um, across the globe. And so when I think about like the vision of who Nasir is 10 years from now, it then helps me be like, all right, well, before I do that, I got to do this. Like before I get to a hundred million, I got to get to a million. Well, how do I get to a million? Okay. Like it'll be this much. And then I start equating in my mind. And then that takes me to cool. Next year I need to do boom. I need to figure out how to create X, Y, Z thing. I need to start to build the foundation of X, Y, Z. So it's like, I do think about it when I'm like kind of plotting out my goals 10 years, but then it allows me to microanalyze them. I love that. That leads me into something. You just made me think of something that I wanted to ask. And <laughs> now I got to do my little dive into my research real quick. Cause I had something there. Okay, perfect. So I want you to, you said a hundred, as soon as you said a hundred million dollar net worth, I don't know if you saw my lips purse up, but I wanted to say why and interrupt you right there. But what we're going to do instead is I want you to stack rank your reasoning for wanting to be successful money, yeah, power or fame. So I want you to like, think about how you would stack rank. That. I only get those three categories. You only get those three. Okay. You only get those three, but let's think about it from a different perspective. Yeah. So power being able to you know, hire 500,000 people and give them work is power. Okay. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, it, when we think about power, you know, let's think about, uh, I don't know, somebody, uh, Thomas Edison, Thomas Edison, 
cre- created something that like changed the entire world. So now you have like that, you know, you're going to have a say. Literally power. You know what Thomas I'm saying? Thomas Edison. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then we got fame, which is, you know, basic. You understand that. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be from like a weird cloudy way. Just fame. Everyone yeah. knows who you are. Let's just put it that way. And then money, just having access to the capital. So money, power, fame. And I'm sure there's other things you wish you could put in there, yeah. but you've been given a box. Yeah. So <laughs> I think I would uh, do that exact order. Mm. Um, and then why? Yeah, yeah. So my number one would probably be money. Mm-hmm. Um, I just believe that we're never going to see equitable opportunities if more people that come from those places aren't able to actually put money into it. Mm. Um, I don't think that there is mm. some dream scenario where within this current society, the way things are done, we all get a chance to be massively rich. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to take people breaking through and then giving back Mm -hmm. to our community in a variety of different ways. And I have, this is actually a funny thing too, that I've never told anybody, but in my journal, I have written down, if I had $10 million, I would do this. And it's like 50 Mm. things I wrote down. If I had $50 million, I would do this. If Mm -hmm. I heard, and I literally have thought about, what it would look like to take care of my family, my friends, my like inner circle first, obviously, but then to literally give away the rest. I've thought about the whole thing. So for me, that's like change. And I've never forget. I heard this one time when I was living in New York. Um, there are people who have money, but don't have power, but there are, there's no one that has power that doesn't have money. Mm. Um, and I had to think about that for a really long time because I was like, there are like a lot of just people that just worked and saved or invested in like mutual funds their whole lives. And now they're sitting on some M's, but you know, they have no power. They have no ability to change things. But if you look at most people that are powerful, they have money, right? Like or they at have least access to it or access to they the move mountains. You know what I'm saying? One would say, Oh, well, MLK wasn't a billionaire. Hey, hmm. With respect, give him a few more years. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, what can he do, though? How Absolutely. much How much can he move and how much capital is required for that to be moved? It don't have to be his capital. Yeah. Because you got to think about that, too. Social I think you, you definitely understand this space from the perspective of, like, sometimes it's other people's money, but because of your power, your representation, the energy, your knowledge, your information, your intelligence, your relationships, you can... It's like chessboard, you know what I'm saying? Saying something. This ain't my 10 mil, but checkmate. Yeah. And so now you've enabled something to happen or created access or created an opportunity, not through your money, but you're the reason that money was moved, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Absolutely, bro. And I think wealthy people will say it too. It's like if you can figure out a way to leverage other people's money to do Mm -hmm. anything, that's smart, right? So I would say money goes first for me. Power is next because I just want to create change. That's just really what it is. Um, And I think there's ways where um, if you're either holding the purse strings or have access to the purse strings, you can make things happen regardless of whatever kind of social structures or political structures are in place. And we see that every day and I won't go down that, that rabbit hole right now. And then the, yeah, go ahead. What does power look like to you though? Say, imagine the seer gains what he perceives as a certain level of, you know, power like you define that because sure i gave my little definition like well power can be this yeah how would you define power like you reach that level where you're like i have power right now what does that look like i think it's the ability to make decisions unhindered not unrestricted but unhindered right so at any given moment i can choose to do 
almost anything within legal, ethical, moral right. bounds. Right. And there's no one that can tell me I can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like to think because I have a good moral compass that it would usually be good things. Right. Um, but that ability to like really create change, right? That ability to be like, man, like there are no schools here only for black kids that are excellent. Like private, like Rockhurst level, mm-hmm. but for black kids. Mm-hmm. You know what? I'm going to start one. Right. Tomorrow. You know what I mean? Right. And I know exactly who to, I know I can call people over here from anywhere in the country because I can do that. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so that's, that's like what I see it as, you know, there are times where like I'm in my bag and I'm like, and somebody really pissed me off at that restaurant. I want to buy that tomorrow. <laughs> but I mean, I think like that's, that's just me kind of leaning on my little devil shoulder a little bit. But I think in reality, it's like the ability to make decisions unhindered mm. and to be able to actually go like create real change. That's how I think about it. And then the fame piece, bro, like, I really don't care about fame. I've always said, even since I was little, excuse me, I said, um, I want to be renowned, but I don't want to be famous. Meaning, if I pulled up to the gym and there was a bunch of people in here and you were in here, I want Kyle to be like, yo, I know Nas. But, like, I would not want anyone else to know me. Mm-hmm. Or if I pulled up to a city hall event, the mayor, you know, tips his hat. But, like, I'm in there, I'm chilling. And that's primarily for me because, like, I still want to live a normal life. You know what I think is funny about that? I think uh, a lot of people think that the the money and power has to come before you can get that type of fame still. Mm-hmm. Like, still, just being renowned. But one thing is, one, just because of how you describe that, <laughs> there's a lot of people that are renowned, uh, at least on a city level. You know what yeah. I'm saying? I, you know, <laughs> I'll, tip my, I'll tip my hat to you and, and Joshua and... Uh, I could think of a few other people where I think that in my head when they walk in the room, like, oh, I know who that is. Oh, there it go. And then when I see you dap you up real quick, keep it pushing. And I have admiration for you guys. It's not that. like a, you know, idolization. <laughs> but no, it's an admiration. You know what I'm saying? I see Josh come in the room. I'm like, oh, yeah, I know Josh. You know what I'm saying? And I feel good about saying yeah. that to myself. You know what I'm saying? And so I think it's funny. I think you probably already have some of that already. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you should just know that. I appreciate it. Bro. Um, so let's, we've talked so much about it, but maybe haven't broken it down for individuals who may not be aware of what it is. Um, let's just quickly define venture capital for dummies. Yeah. Okay. So being that you are in that space and when, when we go to your LinkedIn, when people look you up after this, I feel like that's what they're going to see first. That's why I asked you that question yeah. about businesses. Cause a lot of your stuff is like stealth right now. Yeah. I feel like. I could be wrong. Maybe yeah, you're I'm just right. missing you're right. it. But, you're right. but it's very stealth, and VC is very upfront. So yeah. I just want people to kind of know what you're doing and understand. So VC for dummies. Absolutely. So venture capital is the work of investing in high-growth startups or companies with the expectation that there will be an outstanding return when those companies mature. So um, venture capitalists raise money from institutions, endowments, high-net-worth individuals, and organizations in order to invest in these startup companies. Um, And then through kind of a period of, you know, let's call it five to 10 years, the goal is that one of those companies or a few of those companies in a portfolio are going to get acquired or go public. And then in that kind of sell or liquidity event, money will be returned to the investors that they then give back to the organizations they raise from and then kind of take some off the top for their time, obviously having invested and managed those companies. And so it's all about investing in high growth or highly scalable companies over kind of a condensed or certain amount of time. Okay. And when you say high growth, does that mean they've already, like every fund has a different level that they're willing to invest at? So this company 
must, you know, it must look like they're going to 10x their revenue in the next three years based off their current number. Or let's just use some basic like 12 months. Over the next 12 months, they're yeah. probably going to grow at this rate based off of their current revenue and expenses and all this. Is that what you mean? Like, okay, they're looking like they're going to do this. So we're first off willing to invest. Yep. Now let's have a conversation and see if like it's a smart idea to invest. Is that what it means by... I guess break down high growth. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, that was you were thinking about it like perfectly the okay, right way. Yeah. I see the venture capitalist wheel just like starting to turn, I'm trying, bro. I'm trying, I'm trying. So it's it's um investopedia.com. <laughs> um you are both analyzing the company and the solution, but you're also thinking about the market, right? Mm-hmm. So the market is how many addressable people can this product be of value for or this service be of value for. And so we do, I mean, countless hours of market research per company that we evaluate to see if the market that they're going in actually makes it. I mean, the market has to be massive. We're talking about, um, there's a term that venture capitalists use called TAM, TAM, total addressable. addressable. Total target. Yeah, Yeah, you got it. So um, we're looking at a market's, or excuse me, a company's TAM, Mm -hmm. and then trying to figure out, okay, if you grab a certain percentage of that market share, will this company be super valuable, Mm. right? And so- when we say high growth, we're talking about the ability to go out and capture large swaths of the market, large kind of portions of the market, turning that into revenue for the company. Could that be a smaller portion of a much larger industry so that the money still makes sense? So it's like okay, absolutely 3% of alcohol, you know what I'm saying? Or absolutely. like liquor. And then you're like, well, 3% of the liquor market is fucking $5 billion. Yeah. So we can rock with that. Is exactly. That, okay, cool. Exactly. But I mean, like, they have to also then, so now we get into the nuances of due diligence, where mm-hmm. it's like, we have to see enough, both historical kind of proof points, but also actual data that you can provide to us that give us confidence and conviction that you can go get 3%, right? Because like, what are some of those things that, like, like just, again, this doesn't have yeah. to be super in detail, because- Maybe people aren't interested in that. I know I am, so <laughs> coffee shop after this. But anyways, like uh, a little details about what due diligence looks like. Like what are you looking for from that founder to like bring to the table and be like, all right, this is what why I know we can do this. Yeah, so <clears throat> we're talking about now like evaluating a company and mm-hmm. really thinking about if it's something that we can invest in. So the first kind of three things that we're looking at are the founder as an actual kind of reference or studyable point. We're looking at the market and then we're looking at a scalable or – um, easily kind of grown customer acquisition strategy. So I'll break those down and then I'll go into some more of their data points that we look at. But for the founder, we're looking at somebody that's either built something before. So they're either a serial entrepreneur, they know how this journey is or an industry veteran, right? Like they've spent a ton of time building homes and now they're building a robotics platform to build homes automatically, right? The market I just kind of explained. And then that repeatable or customer acquisition strategy is, how do you actually intend to go out, tell the story of this thing and convince people that they should buy your product to do whatever it is that they want to do easier, faster, better. So those are kind of the first things that we're looking at when we're evaluating a company. We then specifically at 68, but every firm has different due diligence points, look at about 30 different data points and it's background checks. It's uh, market research. As I said before, it's hitting historical financials that you might have. It's product diligence. So we're looking at, you know, like who's actually building your product? Are you outsourcing that? Are you building it in-house? You have an engineer. I mean, we're putting together all these things and you might say like, man, like why does all that matter, right? Like it's just random information, but we're trying to take a bet, right? Like if you outsource your product development to somebody, 
we now have to say it's going to take you 72 hours to make any changes to a bug versus if you had someone in-house that can make that change immediately. But then we have to then go to the other side, the financial side, and say, but if you have someone in-house, it's going to cost you this much more and you're going to burn through this much more money, which means your company now has a lower life cycle potentially versus if you... So we're always kind of playing with those things and I think trying to really poke holes. That's what it is, right? Like we're venture capitalists that are trying to make money, but we're also... Um, doing a risk assessment because we have to manage risk. So now we're sitting there trying to basically understand, do we feel like you are the person to be able to properly manage this risk and to be able to handle kind of all of these different components? So the, all those things go into the due diligence process. We will sometimes like do tons of reference interviews on the founders themselves. I mean, there's, we'll do customer calls. We'll, you know, grab an email from the company and try to be them for a day and go sell it ourselves. I mean, there's, there's not one thing. There's so many things. But again, it's how quickly can we get comfortable with this company in a short period of time so that we can execute on that investment? I love it. I love it. One thing I've always wondered is like, what what's the, say somebody wants to go into venture capital, but they're not trying to start a fund, right? So they're just wanting to go work for a VC firm out of college. What would you say is the quote-unquote incentive for that individual? Why would somebody want to do that? Would you say it's typically going to be people who want to be founders, but they want to go learn first? Would you say it's people who want to work their way up and become like the, whoever, whatever the title is for the head of the (laughs) fund, right? Um, What is a typical young person's like, in your humble opinion, obviously there's no right answer, of course, but um, of why a young individual would finish college and want to go work for a VC firm, what would be the incentive, I guess? At least from your conversations with other young people in the VC space. Yeah. I mean, I got like first interested in VC when I was 22, 27. I'll be 28 soon. So it's like, I was relatively young when I first wanted to do it. I think the first thing that people get excited about is like, Oh, you get to make all this money. Um, but then you realize like at a junior role, unless you go to a top tier firm. And when I say top tier, I mean like one of the top 10, you're probably not going to make what your investment, like, you know, uh, counterparts at investment banking or private equity are going to make, you know what I'm saying? Like, so then it's really like, do you actually love the work of meeting with startup founders, learning new things every day, like constantly being on go? I made a joke the other day. It's like all VCs are ADHD. Cause it's like literally like any given moment of the day, we're doing like 500 different things. And like, you have to really kind of be built like that. Um, I don't think that a lot of people go VC and then go founder. There are some people that do that. I think we see a lot of founders that go VC because they've built something and now they, you know, either exit it successfully or realize they want to be on the capital side because they understand how companies work. But, you know, I would say the biggest things for a young person that is looking at VC or the most important things that they should be thinking about is, you know, where do I want to be again, kind of in the next few years, because partner tracks, which that's where you really start to get, the, the real economy of being at a VC firm, you get carried interest, you get equity and whatever the, the company is. You know, what do I kind of want to do? Do I want to be a partner? Um, do I have an interest in meeting with several different companies and learning about different industries all the time? Do I want to be working a high paced, very fast kind of uh, crucial and important job? Um, and do I want to learn money management, right? Because a lot of it is, fund managing, understanding how to actually allocate capital. You know, I could see some young people maybe saying like, eventually I want to write my own deals or write my own angel checks or whatever it may be. So they go to a VC firm to learn, but um, it's tough. It's tough to come in like junior. I did it. um, And then kind of work your way up to 
partner level um, or principal level or VP level or whatever it may be. But I think if you know that this is kind of what you want to do and you want to figure out how to invest dollars into high growth companies or high potential areas, then it's a great place to start. Love it. I love it. I wanted you to break that down because, you know, there might be somebody listening right now who hasn't heard of the space, but then they get excited yeah. and then you're like, wait, all right, let me tamper, tamper that excitement <laughs> a little bit. What's this all about? So um, I appreciate you sharing that. We're, we're dialing it in towards the end of this podcast. So one of the questions I want to ask you is, you know, what are you looking for in terms of uh, the type of people you want to connect with right now in this phase of life, the the type of assistance you're looking for, the type of partnerships you're looking for. If anybody happens to watch this and they might be the right person for something you're looking for, I want to make sure we can plug that. So just share the world, share with the world. What is Nasir Chris looking for? Who are you looking to connect with? And then we'll move to our final question and wrap it up. Man, I appreciate you asking that. That's definitely something that I've been challenging myself to more is asking for more help and then allowing people to come into my life, man. Um, so one, I'm looking for anyone that's passionate about a very specific idea that they have in mind. Um, I think I love sitting with people that can articulate to me something that is um, just beautiful, right? Like something that they see real change and a real opportunity. And so thought kind of leaders or thought experts are what I'm looking for. I'm looking for anyone that's looking to allocate capital. So high net worth individuals, institutions, organizations, anybody that's saying, hey, I want to invest in what the future of diverse communities looks like, not solely from a social impact lens, but from an opportunistic lens too, right? Like people that have not gotten an opportunity, once they get an opportunity, are going to do great things. It's simple math. And so um, looking for investors of all sorts, whether it be a 5K check or 5 million check, right? I want to meet all those people. Um, and then lastly, man, I'm looking for people that can kind of contradict my own thoughts, bro. Like I just, I want to sit down with smart people that, um, can challenge the way that I think, um, you know, that have studied whatever it is and can teach me different things about life. I love that. I love that. I probably asked you this question on our last episode and good because I ask it every episode to kind of compare last answer to new answer. So it's your last day on earth. You've lived to 150 years old. You have, <laughs> you know, all the achievements, 100 mil net worth, taking care of the community, investing back in Africa. We got we got to talk about that yeah, another man. day. But um, you've done everything you've wanted to do. You felt like you've created impact in the world and, and, and you know, generated, you know, the energy you needed to, to give in to your purpose, right? But it's your last day on earth. Great, great grandchildren sitting at your feet, and they're like, great, great grandpa, Nasir, give me one piece of advice on how to live a good life. What are you going to tell them? Man, I think this is something new, and I definitely did not say this last time. I don't know what happened. I must have got a year older, and now I'm thinking about different things, but I would literally say, look to your left, look to your right, take care of those people that are near you with all that you can. That's it. I wanted to make a joke so bad because when I looked to the left, I didn't see you. Didn't you didn't see nobody. And when I looked to the right, I didn't see you. So I guess I ain't taking care of my brother. I think about the, I think about the little, little kids. Yeah, nah, I love it. I love it. Well, I appreciate it, brother. Let's go ahead and dap up. I really appreciate it. Make sure that you connect with Nasir on IG, LinkedIn. We'll plug that when we release and drop this. Um, and most importantly, ladies and gentlemen, Press that notification button. Subscribe, like, and share. That is the only way we can grow. That is the only way we can spread Nasir's message of, go ahead and say it one more time, providing equitable opportunities for marginalized communities. That's a wrap, ladies and gentlemen.